Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers. Hello, today I'm hosting this special podcast recording from day one of the Alzheimer's Society Conference in London at the Keir Oval, so listen out for distant shouts of how's that? This podcast is also very exciting and special for us as we are approaching our 10,000th play. So to celebrate this milestone, we're giving away a pair of high-end Sony headphones. To be in with the chance of winning, all you have to do is register on our website, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and complete a short survey. For details on the survey, visit our website dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk or check out our Twitter feed on atdem underscore researcher. We are recording a podcast on both days of the conference for a two-part special. Part two will focus on biomedical research, and today's podcast will focus on care and what we have seen and heard today. So I'd like to welcome our three panellists, all of whom have been in attendance today. Gillian Harrison is an Alzheimer's Society Research Network volunteer and a former carer for her mother. Claudia Cooper, Professor of Psychiatry of Older Age based at the UCL Alzheimer's Society Centre for Excellence and the lead researcher on the NIDAS study, which we'll talk a bit more about later. And David Sharp, NIHR Research Professor at Imperial College London and Honorary Consultant Neurologist. In December 2018, he was announced as the new UK DRI Associate Director for Care and Technology. Hello, everyone. Hi. Shall we start with a quick roundtable on which sessions and speakers you've heard today that have particularly interested you? Gillian, would you like to start? Um, the, the one that opened um, sort of a general panel discussion um, was particularly interesting because we were highlight, they were highlighting the importance of joined up care uh, with care and NIH, NHS provision. I mean, we keep hearing this, but nothing too much has happened yet. Um, so um, that was important for me. At least it's being talked about, and maybe the more we talk about it, the better it'll get. And in fact, um, we had the Minister of um, uh, Social Services and Health and Social Services uh, just at the last session we'd just come mm-hmm. up, and she was talking about the importance of um, having a, a credible strategy um, on um, going forward on these lines because it's been part of the, the 2020 um, objective. Um, I hope she, she means that. Mm. And did she mention the next five years? Well, I think within that, um, she also highlighted another session, which I found particularly interesting, um, on the role of the New Dementia Research Institute um, on the care side of that, not the biomedical, and the importance of technology is going to play and the amazing things that you can possibly do with the technology um, moving forward. And um, and she was saying the same. She thought there was a great um, move forward now, you, how technology can support um, people in their own homes and carers. Um, but I, I do think she did say, well, we wouldn't want to replace people, carers. And I do think that's really important. That can get very lost when you're talking about technology. Is it just to save money or is it really to import, improve care, mm-hmm. which does mean people to a large extent, I think. Yeah. Claudia? 
Well, I was late because I'm delighted to say that um, the Minister um, Caroline Dinanage started her day by visiting us at the UCL Alzheimer's Society Centre of Excellence to hear about our work on the NIDAS programme. Um, but I got here in time to hear a very interesting session on some of the more biological research which I don't do, but a bit like the technology research, it's useful to hear um, the cutting edge on that so that you can see how what you're doing fits in. Um, and there was a really interesting um, presentation by Gemma Roberts from Newcastle, actually, in which she showed um, videos of um, a man um, receiving a brain scan and then um, receiving the, did you see that one, yes, Jill? Yeah. yeah, receiving um, a cardiac scan, which they're suggesting would be cheaper and simpler. And as somebody, as a, as a doctor working in a memory service that sends people off for tests, I think it's really useful to see what a difference it makes having a, a less intrusive test at, at a difficult time. Yes, it, it came it out make, well, didn't it? Really it really did. The heart yes. one, it didn't make much difference in the actual results did it, it was quite you know they yeah. were similar and and it's cheaper and easier and there wasn't I mean with the brain one having this sort oh, of yes. magnets whizzing round of your head and just mm. think I don't think any of us would, would I wouldn't better like that. after that no. <laughs> um, and there was also a talk in the same session by um, Harriet Dimnitz um, King um, about the role of biomarkers mm. um, and I think that's again something that we are going to be incorporating into care, um, no doubt, because people want good care, but they also want accurate information about um, prognosis mm. and um, the best available treatments. Yes, I think the thing like this, you get so many aspects of dementia, mm -hmm. um, and on that's the biomarkers. They've been trying to find these over years. Mm. Uh, and there was a really interesting one, I thought, of Exeter University is looking into on the role of EEGs, you know, yes. like uh, and repurposing mm. the EEG and using it um, in a different way for as a biomarker, mm. as a diagnostic tool, which you don't usually, yeah. you know, think of. And that's been done mm. with an Ameri Italian um, researcher in San Marino. So it's great that there's a lot of. Um, um, cross fertilization absolutely, of ideas absolutely. of research. Um, and then in the afternoon, I, I spoke at a session on co-production where a few of us described our experiences of working with PPI on research programs. And it, it's really interesting to, to share ideas about how to do it really and what works well. David, I think just to quickly interject, a lot of things that you talked about have just been brought up here. Biomarkers, to be, we'll talk a bit about that later, and co-production. So there's sort of lots of things going on, and I know you work at the DRI, so you're sort of bringing these things maybe under your umbrella of care and technology? Uh, yeah, hopefully. I mean, so it's, it's a very exciting uh, time right at the moment. It's, it's, it's brilliant to be able to come here and share some of the some of the plans. Um, so the new centre is just about started now. I don't think we've actually officially started, but we've got six years of funding. So we've got, you know, some big plans over the next few years, really focusing on, um, on the development of new technology, bringing different strands of technology into the, the care space and then sort of evaluating them in a kind of robust, 
robust scientific way so we can work out what the, what the, the, the best tools to use are. Um, and I agree, I think lots of, lots of those kind of strands have come up through the day. It's been, a, it's been an interesting uh, kind of experience. I, I was just saying actually before that, uh, you know, one of the interesting things is there's a, there's a new app um, for Alexa called My Carer, uh, which has been funded by the Alzheimer's Society. And I had not seen it before, but it was being presented in the, in the session here. And that seemed to be a really interesting practical direction because it was essentially a, a way to use the Alexa system to prompt, say, medication use or, um, or kind of eating everyday activities in the home. But it was making use of some actually very innovative um, new technology, but in quite a practical way. And I suppose that kind of illustrated some of the things that we're, we're planning to do and are doing at the moment is kind of repurposing some of the technology. With the, the big technology companies are putting tremendous resources into developing these, these new ways of, of doing things. And I think if we're clever, we can make relatively rapid progress by sort of working out how we use those best in the, in the, in the care environment. I guess there's sort of two parts to using technologies and there's data gathering and then sort of under so you can understand the disease better and then the practical side of it so uh, the DRI is also doing a big data are you doing data collection in a way? Yeah, so um, so I suppose our job in us, the, the, the Care Research and Technology Centre is largely focused on the development of the technology and the evaluation of the technology. So we're not funded actually to develop really big cohorts of people who we're going to collect you know, data from thousands of people because they already exist actually. There are quite a lot of cohorts and a lot of money being put into that. Um, you know, What we would hope to do is to add value to, to that work by providing tools that people can use and, uh, and a platform that we can use to sort of integrate that, that information but certainly the um, part of the focus of what we'll do is to support people to live for as long as possible in their own homes another bit of it is to is to work out the best tools to track how people are progressing whether they you know whether we can get sensitive digital biomarkers of you know how things are changing because I think actually what comes out of the the way that you use your phone or the way that you are kind of operating in the kitchen if, if we can measure that accurately then that will give us information about um, about how things are progressing that's much more precise than um, doing a MMSE once every six months or something. Well, what do you um, mean yeah. if someone's moving about in the kitchen, what does that show? Well, that, well, actually, what else could you actually like? even the simplest measures are informative. So if you, if you simply measure um, how fast you walk, um, so if you had sensors in your home that measured how fast you walked down the hallway and you did that every day for four years, I mean, it's been shown that, you know, actually those very simple measures of speed are very informative and, they, and they're actually much better predictors of what's going to happen over time than, yeah. than doing a paper and pencil test of cognition every six months, for example. Yeah. Um, I yeah. They sort of build on when people say, oh, I noticed my mother was doing this. It's in a way a digital reader of that. Because exactly. you say, you know, it's, you've it's, noticed yeah. that she didn't remember to do this or yeah. she did start to walk slower. You will have a digital reader Exactly. So, it. I mean, tradi the traditional approach to doing this, essentially we're looking at things that are sort of abstractions of what we're actually interested in. Mm -hmm. So you might do, I don't know, a test of your working memory or something that 
gives you some information about uh, what people's cognitive function is. What you're really interested in was what is what's happening in their lives, in their homes, how fast yeah. they can do things. Oh, you know? Are they coping? Yeah. With that? Are they coping? Yeah. You know, what we're proposing using technology for is to get into into that environment and to give us those measures, which is what we really care about. I think in mm-hmm. the end, mm-hmm. um, you know, we we might work out which of the other measures sort of relate to that best. But actually, if we can just get directly at behaviour, then that's I think going to be in the end much more useful in various ways. Yes, because it came yeah. up. I think you mentioned the fact, that, for instance, it's very important to catch if people are keeping on getting infections, like urinary tract yeah. infections, yeah. Um, and you would, might be able to pick up that they're going to the toilet more, and therefore they've got an infection. Or, or you can pick up, you know, prove that they've got an infection, therefore the GP could deal with it more quickly. Yeah, exactly. So, so what, I mean, if you think about what brings people into hospital, um, it's quite often, you know, the development of untreated urinary tract infections, which is quite, I mean, it, it's very common. It's quite surprising in some ways. We, we have treatments, we just don't use them quickly enough. The question mm-hmm. is, why don't we? And I, I think when people are developing dementia, the, the ways we assess whether there is an infection there don't really work so well. So we end up delaying that treatment for much too long. Mm. So we think we can use the technology to, one, pick up the changes in behaviour. You know, if you're Mm. drinking a lot or not drinking enough or going to the toilet too much, these sort of things, or you're getting a a temperature. So simple things that, not rocket science, but then also point of care diagnostics of the, the actual microbiology. So if you if you have the bug in your urine, that changes you the likelihood that you you'll get an infection. You know, and if we ha- if we have that information and we can test it in the home, then in the end we'll have a much more accurate system. And then we can flag up that there is an infection, and the GP needs to yeah. post off some antibiotics or something. Because yeah. actually, there's also been quite a lot of emphasis on. There was a session I didn't understand all of it, but uh, collecting data. And how important it, how how it can be used if you collect it properly and it's reliable, like national um, health. What are they called? National Health England or yeah. Um, there's all sorts of data hanging around that people can use. Uh, I, I mean, I haven't really thought about it, but, you know from big cohorts of information, and now you can download it and you can work out what's useful or not. Yeah, I, it's an interesting human story, though, isn't it? About about acceptance of this um, because actually what I find fascinating is that it's it's in some ways less intrusive than what we have at the moment because people tell us they don't want to do an MMSC every six months um, and actually if you have data in your home looking at how quickly you're moving up and down the corridor on one level that's less intrusive um, I remember when I, I used to suggest falls um, monitors to people and then I saw one. This was years ago. I thought I wouldn't wear that. It was a huge oh, belt. Oh, <laughs> you know, having having said, would, have you considered a falls um, monitor? Um, whereas actually now we don't need that, do we? So it's less intrusive. But I think for some people, perhaps it feels more intrusive because it's, I don't know, more accurate or you people feel that a lot is known about them. Um, but I should imagine that we're on a journey towards this being in many, many homes. And as a more, being the more low, much more low tech end of the um, dementia spectrum, we are um, developing sort of manualised interventions to help family carers and people living with dementia to have the right information, to think about behavioural management in the right ways. But if we're successful, and I think this is clearly going to be successful, the, the, the technology aim, then we should be working together in the future. So I suppose I find it interesting to think about the environment in which we will still be caring and 
being people and thinking about relationships, um, but we'll be doing it in a, in a potentially more helpful environment. It's not amazingly intrusive what you were suggesting in your talk. I mean, it's not as bad as a chastity belt type thing. I mean, but <laughs> your little, I mean, it's not big, is it? You could put your monitors or whatever. It's, it's small, isn't it? It, it devices. Is. I mean, well, obviously, we're, we're, we're doing this at the moment with our partners in Surrey, and actually, the feedback is you know, people don't notice it. Don't well, you soon get used the, to something, the, the, the stuff don't you? Well. You don't notice the telly's yeah. even on, you know, that sort of stuff. So, you wouldn't notice it was there, yeah, I wouldn't have thought. You wouldn't, and actually, I mean, I think, <laughs> the, I think the distinction between things that you have to engage in, things that you have to wear or put on, mm. or, you know, that are in some way intrusive or you know, kind of annoying. Mm. Um, to me, there's a, lo- a lot of what we might do is in that realm, but actually we need to move as much as possible towards the completely unobtrusive and passive kind of assessment. So, you know, we, if we're just monitoring the environment in a way that's informative, but you never notice, then that's that's where we need to be really, because then we don't have problems with compliance and with uh, um, you know engagement. And that's sort of true if you, if you think about the the kind of the cognitive tests that you might do. The problem is people have got to do them right. And if you and if you want to track how people are doing over time, you've got to get them to do it every month or six months or whatever it is. And then you dread then, going yeah. to have it done. Yeah, exactly. We need some oh, other way that doesn't you know that gives us more information, but actually is much less onerous to to engaging. I think. Going back to a point that you made, Claudia, about people might not actually want people to know that much about them. I mean, you sort of say passive in a good way, but it could also be in a bad way. Like you're just sending out all this information and you have no control over it. And, you know, if you go to a doctor, you can control what you say. You can say, I feel okay today so that you are giving the information. But having all the sensors in your house would tell a different story and maybe you don't want that story to be told. But there's still a huge amount of health information about all of us in our GP records, mm-hmm. electronic records, mm-hmm. um, and so forth, isn't there? And I suppose it is about how you control that. What I think is going to be very interesting is, I'm sure this is going to transform how we do research. So the study mm-hmm. that I'm about to start, the outcome assessments will take over an hour. Um, and that puts a lot of people off. And you have to come in and to you, do them. Well, no, we'll go. We'll go to anywhere you want. You know, to, if you'll take part in our study. Um, but it's an it's an hour, an hour and a half of sitting there answering questions. And actually, having sensors put in your house, I should imagine, for many people, would be far less onerous than that. So this is a great opportunity for research data then to be collected, and then you yeah. acted upon. Yeah, I, I think you know we should view this as as you know the same system can be useful and practical and sort of uh, beneficial to people, yeah. but also gives us an opportunity to develop um, our research capability. And you know we we can link those two things; they're kind of interconnected, I think. And how, what sort um, of timeline are we talking about that? Um, well, we're doing so. We're we're doing the data collection now. I mean, we're we're, tra- we're working with our partners in Surrey. You know, they have a group of patients who are um, you know being being tracked at the moment, being monitored, and uh, um, and we hope that things will just roll on seamlessly. So we'll always have a group of people affected by dementia, carers and patients who are you know who are kind of going through the system, and we'll just sort of plug in new technology as it becomes available. Because I think as a carer, ex-carer, um, and people know I've 
gone through it and they're saying oh what's the latest you know and um, how long is it you know we know there's not could probably be any drugs in our lifetime in my lifetime certainly um, so this is a positive thing you can say to people I'm always saying well they are they're coming on you know they're finding out much more about dementia yeah. but um, it's not but, here but, yet but I think this is a re- I think this is a really positive practical kind of yeah. thing that we you know are going to be delivering things that are useful now I mean I, you know the, the dementia research institute generally the focus is much more on the development of uh, new disease treatments yeah. um, and that's a really that's obviously a really important kind of direction but it's going to take a while for the fruits of that to come through to the individual and yeah. and in the meantime I think we can uh, you know we can we can have benefit, you know, by doing things in a more in a more practical yes. way. And of course, it came. Sorry, it came out very early on. Also, in that that you know the amount of money that's spent on dementia I was research. Say less than five percent. Yes, care. it's it's tiny compared mm. with um, you know on dementia care and charity care, mm. charity money as well. And and so it's taking time inevitably to build up enough researchers. To do the research, you can't just suddenly do research, can you? you know? So there is a time lag and we've got to keep pouring money into um, helping you know, the education of um, researchers coming into the field. Claudia, I just uh, wanted to ask, you spoke about NIDAS today, mm-hmm. did you? Yeah, so that's the New Interventions for Independence in Dementia Study. For our listeners who weren't here today, could you give a brief summary? Yes, I, I haven't heard of it. Um, right. summary of what <laughs> Sorry it is. about that. Um, well, this is one of the Alzheimer's Society's three centres of excellence, um, and it's based at UCL. And um, we too, really, it's a, it's a similar aim, are trying to extend the amount of time that people can live in their own homes with dementia. And the way that we are doing that is to... Um, work, develop an intervention in which family carers and people living with dementia set the goals around what they think is important to enable them to stay longer at home. Um, because it, it, we hear a lot at this conference about how dementia is an individual condition and actually what is the critical things are that are going to enable you to stay longer at home are also individual. So it might be about better care of diabetes, it might be about having more activities, accepting home care, it can be about a whole range of things. So we're trying to be smart about how we deliver interventions so that rather than everybody having everything, um, it's modular and depending what your personal goals are, parts of the intervention are selected for you and then we're going to look at whether or not over a year people who have our intervention to help them reach their goals are more likely to do that and in the longer term we will think about look at whether or not it enables people to stay longer at home Mm -hmm. but it's very much about the human relationships really um, and fundamentally about the fact that um, often there are resources around in a community but it's no good to someone if they don't know what's right for them be linked up in it in a way that is helpful and have the right support at the right time i can think because one of the great problems with um, dementia is the fact that it's so different from one person to the next mm-hmm. you know you might w- develop some very good technology for one person but it'll, it won't be helpful for somebody else because Every case is so different, and we've been talking to people here. You know, you talk to colleagues or friends, and we've all been through different um, situations. It's all dementia, but you know, so an individual approach is very important, or t- t- tailoring it. 
to the individual? Well, it's an individual approach for a common goal, um, which is to um, stay longer in your own home, because that's mm. where almost everybody wants to be. I actually yeah. wanted um, to ask that. Is mm. that true? I mean... I'm I sure it is. It's true, yes. um, it, well, we should ask around. Should we should we? <laughs> ask around. Yeah. Well, no, there were statistics about yeah, those that wanted to stay in their yeah. own homes, and it's quite high, isn't it? <laughs> it certainly is, and most people say that they want to live and die with dementia that, at yeah, home. Um, and I've seen. I my clinical job is working in care homes as well as in a memory service, and it's such an enormous disruption. Um, needing to move out of your own home and often you know if you think people who've lived 30 40 years in their own home and have a lifetime of memories um, in their living room but also in the local community and people that know them and I think often people never recover from the transplantation of, of going they to don't, yes I've got a cousin who's just died and she'd lived in her she was an only child she'd been born in her house hadn't got married and then she breaks her hip then she goes into um, you know eventually into a nursing home and you were totally disorientated. I mean, she well, she actually never re- really recovered, and it caused her to be confused. And but in a way, can you harness some of the technology you're talking about to use in people's homes, in care homes, to somehow help the transition? Yeah, or? definitely. I mean, we've we've focused, you know, our initial efforts or initial plans really on the home, just for exactly as you said. I think people in general would stay in the home, and I think if we can extend, you know, the time that they can live well in their home, then that's got to be a good thing right mm-hmm. um, but the technology is agnostic obviously it doesn't it doesn't care where it's deployed um, and um, and of course a, a, you know deploying it into a nursing home or a care home would be you know potentially very valuable I think and that is something that we're that we'll explore mm-hmm. the best way that we can kind of pilot that or mm-hmm. I'm sure it could add add to you know the, the care environment in a, in a, in a care home really. well I think it'd be incredibly helpful because certainly in a lot of care homes I go into you have when people are of great concern they talk about one-to-one ops and so what you have is a chronically underfunded sector with lots of people rushing around looking after most people on the floor and then maybe a couple of people that have somebody one-to-one with them and actually that doesn't work for anyone really because that person will want some privacy and also wouldn't everybody just be a little bit less stressed if those staff could be a little bit more spread across and used and I'm sure that that one-to-one ops could be very much assisted by technology I mean it would be an obvious use wouldn't it really Mm -hmm. and actually we also came across human rights for people you know in, in a general the UN's human rights saying that people with dementia have got the right to not be pushed into a home Um, but I mean what's the alternative if there's no one to look up you know that's the only practical thing but it all comes into this business of provision at home and the practicality of doing it at home. And often one of the one of the final things that leads to a care home admission is that people will not accept home care um, and that's a great challenge and um, I think you know what people are realizing is that the earlier you gradually introduce something and make it more acceptable the more mm. likely um, that is going to be acceptable. You mean technology or do you mean I mean eventually we're talking about people now I think if you're somebody that's led a very independent life mm. and often you know you hear or she is fiercely independent but I'm quite sure I'm going to be fiercely independent aren't we all fiercely independent um, and if you are fiercely independent and then 
you get to the point where things are completely broken down and somebody says you need a carer to come in four times a day, you're probably going to say no because the chances are you might not see things the way other people do. But if you have a, care, a cleaner once a week, yeah. um, if you have people popping in and having a cup of tea and gradually getting to know you in a way that's acceptable to you, then it's much more gentle to increase that. Um, I mean, my grandmother would only accept the hairdresser, so she mm. had the hairdresser every week. And, you know, she didn't have to have her hair cut every week. No, no. Um, but that was an acceptable, because that's something that she'd always done all of her life. Mm-hmm. Um, and we used to sort of, you know, I say to the hairdresser, can you sort of, you know, try yeah. and do a bit of a wash as well? And that worked very well yeah. for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Can you sort of build on that and make somehow make the technology more human because one of the big things is sort of feeling isolated and lonely is there some way you can make the technology help with that side of yeah it? Like, i mean i suppose one thing to say sort of linking with mm-hmm. your work is that we don't envisage this as replacing people at all you know? <laughs> to go um, this is kind this is you know augmenting the system we have i mean mm-hmm. i mean the reality is we're you know we have in some places a very low a low bar right I mean, we, we have very limited resources often and actually you know we've got to work out the ways to make the best of that mm-hmm. um on the the social kind of side of it i mean they you know, in different parts of the world, there is there's a different attitude towards this. I mean, for example, in Japan, they're very interested in you know that kind of social robotics and social sort of uh, technological in- interactions, really. And people are much more open to the idea that uh, um, you might use technology to kind of augment or reduce isolation and things mm-hmm. like that. And they they developed this uh, this seal called the Paro Seal, um, which has some robotic um, kind of uh, elements to it, mm-hmm. and uh, um, and it's relatively widely used in uh, in Japan actually for people with advanced dementia as a way to provide you know sort of uh, companionship in some ways it's um, like a seal yeah. the animal it's a yeah it's like a proper yeah, it looks like a seal and it's kind of cute and white like and, a seal. yeah it feels <laughs> like a seal I mean, I'm not saying that that's necessarily you know what we should be doing it's quite expensive actually um, but uh, <laughs> yeah but uh, but you can imagine I, th- I think some version of that kind of technology um, you know being useful if people are getting increasingly isolated I think which is what's happening well actually yeah. the technology really is very important for the carers you might be able to look after your mother in her own home or yeah. if yeah. Um, you've got things to well I'm, I don't want to replace people by any means but it might enable people to look after their father, father mother whoever at home more if they've got more facilities to help them and that's definitely one of the things we'd like to do we'd like to support you know carers who are just as much affected in some ways or you know it has a massive impact Uh, and i think if we were able to support carers so that they were able to look after people for you know three or four months longer I mean, across the entire population, that's a massive um, impact. So yeah, and look, saving a lot, of care, yeah. saving a lot of money. No, I no, mean, no, like, this comes into exactly, it because exactly, yeah. putting someone into a home, or for them, or the carer, is a very expensive business, and the yeah. state. So um, it's got that. That should be told to people that it's very important to try and do this to keep them out of hospital for that reason alone yeah and I, I think I think that is a, a message that the government are receptive to you know they're receptive <laughs> to the economic arguments aren't they in a way that they perhaps are yes. some other things but, well we talked about yeah. that this morning actually when the, yeah. when the minister came is about how we implement this to make what we have now better and actually if we have a way of delivering systematically good care it's 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 not about there not being wonderful care out there 
it's about improving, I think, the average offer. Because at mm. the moment, you hear wonderful and you hear awful, don't you? And I think it's about mm. getting to a place where everybody has And it's up. very variable, not only the person, but across the country. I mean, this is what's also come out today, is that, oh, Manchester, I think, somewhere, they've got an amazing system and their statistics are much, much better than other places if you're diagnosed somewhere else. And you're lucky if you see anyone for two or three months even to help you once after the diagnosis. So it's very, very patchy. That ought to be able to be cured somehow, shouldn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I think there's also a lot of global learning and that we're all trying to solve the same problems. We're actually, we're going to um, Japan to do a NIDAS sort of joint seminar um, with Tokyo Metropolitan University. And I think it'd be very interesting how, I'm sure technology will feature in that and (laughs) there will be differences because, you know, currently I think we're quite low tech apart from places which are extremely high tech. Um, But it's interesting to to So have they done research on um, how effective high tech care is uh, from the point of view of the person who's receiving it? Do they like it, in other words? Yeah, I think. I mean, our experience in the yeah. in the, the Surrey project is that people do like it and they feel supported and safer and empowered and you know, these these sort of things. So, in terms of a, a, a general quality of life uh, kind of effect, I think it's generally positive. Um, and what we hope to do is to sort of to tailor the new technology to maximise those quality of life benefits. Really, to to, to work out what's going to have the biggest bang for the buck. Really, I suppose, and go that that direction. And sort of on that theme, you talked a bit about co-production as well. Yeah. And one of the examples you gave was about weighing scales. Maybe you could yeah. elaborate for our listeners. Well, that was an example from the Siri Timfer Dementia Project, really. And they had, um, and in that project, they were really taking stuff that had been manufactured for other other reasons. So stuff you can just buy on the internet, mm. and they were linking up with companies. Um, so it wasn't at all made specifically for, okay. for the dementia space. Um, but for example, they were, people were getting weighed um, uh, once a day and the company delivered some black scales. Um, and there was a problem for quite a few of the, the patients because they perceived the black scales as being a hole in the ground and so wouldn't stand on the scales. Um, that was obviously solved by providing some white scales, yeah. which, uh, <laughs> which were more fit for purpose. Yeah. Um, but also, I mean, uh, more difficult to solve, for example, they had a, an iPad um, app that had been developed as a way to interact with people remotely. Um, And a company had put a lot of time into developing uh, this software. And they had like an avatar, so a face on the screen that would talk to um, uh, people. And the problem was that nobody liked it. You know, everybody thought that the face just looked really weird and was quite quite frightening. Um, So, you know, and the interesting thing there from a design perspective was that the company had sort of, you know, spent, you know, 100,000 pounds on getting it to that stage and never really showed it to anybody Mm. and obviously if you were to approach things differently and you know show somebody a picture of you know that you'd drawn and said what do you think about this didn't you you say that part of your development is getting the designer in yeah. right at the first yeah. so, so, we, so we have a des- we have a design studio if you like which is within Imperial it's called Helix um, and uh, it's a partnership with the Royal College of Arts and that is specifically about trying to do health design in a different way really mm-hmm. and um, and that's led by a guy called Lenny Nahr who's working on this project so he's not an academic he's a designer from industry and he's interested in how we kind of how we do this sort of technology design in this space so the idea is we bring 
bring people in right at the start, right now, who you know are affected or are living with dementia or people, GPs or whoever it is that has a stake in it, and we bring them in at the start. And we and what they do is they do they they kind of mock up you know things that we might make. So in this situation, we might mock up a an iPad thing, just a very low tech, low cost sort of version, and show it to people, and they interact with it, and then we get a feel for whether or not that's going to be a, a good thing in the end. Before exactly, it's a, you know, so it's a typical kind of co-design mm-hmm. sort of approach, but but in a way, kind of focused at the start of this this you know, our whole design process. Mm-hmm. And I I, th- I think it's a I think it's just a really interesting approach to it because what I see in in periods, we've got lots and lots of really clever engineers and computer scientists, and they're typically working you know a long long way from. You know, reality mm. a long way from you know people <laughs> in the community, right? So they mm. they do lots of really cool stuff, mm. and then a few years later, eventually, it might get into somebody's hands, and mm. you sort of say, "Well, that's not really what we want," or you know, <laughs> it's not going to work because it doesn't look right. You and mentioned that yeah. Imperial yeah. now engineering and the medical studies are going to be in the same building. Is that right? Or yeah. So historically, it's been, a, it's been Imperial's been there's been a problem because we're all on different campuses. Mm. So engineering and the South Kensington bit near the Royal Albert Hall, and then the hospitals are sort of scattered in different locations. And so the the vision at Imperial um, recently has been to try and bring them together. And we have a new campus which is on the old BBC Worldwide kind of site by the A40. And there we've got a number of buildings that are bringing the engineers and the medics and the technologists mm. into the same space, and also industry. So mm. small industry are kind of being given space, you know, kind of aligned with the university sector. So we we we'd like, and this I think is a a great example of a of a sort of target where people can really engage with it in a very practical way. And I hope that this will be a perfect sort of um, you know a, a perfect project for people to link together in that in that space. Cool. I just wondered about you said um, about the avatar and it didn't go down well. Yeah. Uh, I wonder with sort of over time, obviously new different generations are going to sort of come up to the dementia age. And like you were saying about in Japan, it was very well accepted, the seal, but it might not be here because we just don't have a similar culture towards technology, maybe. So over time, do you see it changing and things becoming more acceptable? Or do you find that it's most things are accepted? It was just that avatar was weird. Didn't like the picture. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I, um, I think I think it's changing really fast, right? I think. Mm. I mean, I think the you know I think the way we live now is, in some ways, quite different technologically to say ten years ago, isn't it? I mean, the way that we mm. that we use our phones and the you know how we communicate, how you know our family WhatsApp group where everything's shared, yeah. and my seven-year-old son is you know sharing everything and taking pictures of everything and linking up with his grandparents the whole time. I mean, that's a very, to me, a very positive. He's very advanced, my son. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have to go to my yeah. nine-year-old to make my phone work. Yeah. I think that's what I was meaning, not necessarily the technology, but the people yeah. will change. Yeah. So yeah, you'll yeah, get different. Well, yeah. I think you'll still have the same problems with dementia. Well, unless <laughs> conquered it. Uh, we'll have the same sort of problems with the actual, uh, and it'll be very variable still, but you will probably be able to assume someone will perhaps will, will be familiar with, say, a f- smartphone, which people aren't at the moment. It's yeah. no good saying to them, oh, you can le- listen to Alexa. You know, they're not capable of doing that because the dementia is taken over and they don't want to do it and the carers don't want to be involved. But I think that will change to a certain they'll see that and, that, and they'll be familiar with the te- technical 
things that we're we're not yeah. with in this gen in my generation. Mm -hmm. So and people have shown that in in terms of caring for your long term conditions as well. That actually, if you have a mm. long term condition such as diabetes that you've had for a long time and you get dementia, you can often carry on. Um, administering insulin and so oh, forth. Oh, I see. Because time. you've been doing it. Because yeah. you've been doing it for a long time. Mm, yeah. But if you develop diabetes after dementia, then yeah. that's much less likely. Mm. Yeah. Um, and certainly in our memory service, our occupational therapist always says, you know, you you have to work with the smartphone phone people have. And if, if somebody has got something like that, yeah. then it's amazing and use it because they they'll use it. Yes. Yeah. And just a, just a point about that. I think that that idea of of getting in early is really potentially really valuable right not not waiting until you know everything's a disaster but you know just an extension of the point you made really but i think from the technology point of view if you have the system in place very early on when people have a pretty normal life um and they're you know essentially the artificial intelligence can, can learn you know what somebody's normal routine is which is often quite structured you know, I get up at you know seven o'clock every day, and I you know go downstairs and make breakfast. I do things in a pretty regimented order, um, and you know although you know, we all do things very differently, as an individual, you tend to do exactly the same things again and again. So I think one one you know one really interesting aspect is that if we can define the individual's pattern of behaviour, which doesn't necessarily vary that much from day to day, and as it breaks down. You know, then the system can support that that particular behaviour, and, and we would have we would have learned those patterns, you know, because you know that that, that behaviour would have been intact previously. Yeah. So I think that gives us that that turns what potentially is a, is a really complicated problem into something, you know, from a machine learning perspective that's perhaps much more tractable, much more soluble. I think. Let's hope so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's great. I think it's time to end today's podcast recording. So I'd like to thank all of our panellists, David, Claudia and Gillian. If you'd like to see more reflections of the conference, check out the hashtag, hashtag ASAC19. The team will be writing up blogs for our supporters and followers that you may find interesting too. We have profiles on all of today's panellists on the website, including details of their Twitter accounts. Finally, please remember to subscribe and leave a review on this podcast through SoundCloud and iTunes. Thank you. This was a podcast brought to you by Dementia Researcher. Everything you need in one place. Register today at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk.